first reading is from Judges chapter 8, starting at verse 32, and it's page 259 of the Church Bibles. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash, in Ophrah, of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died that the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them, and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all seventy of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man. Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. They gave him seventy shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Bereth, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone murdered his seventy brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. Good evening. Uh, I'm James Brooks, one of the ministry team here, and we're going to be looking at that uh, passage uh, and a little bit further on as well. So the passage that uh, we're looking at tonight, uh, that some of you might have read in growth groups this week, uh, goes from uh, chapter 8, 32, all the way through to the end of chapter 12. Uh, it's quite a big section, so what we're going to do is uh, have that first reading. Thanks, Aline. Uh, we'll look at the first part, uh, and then Aline's going to come up and read uh, a section from chapter 10, and we'll go on from there as well. Uh, there's an outline uh, that hopefully you would have got on the way in as well uh, as we uh, look at this tonight. Hopefully that's helpful for you. But uh, negotiations, I don't know if you've heard uh, about uh, the negotiations between North Korea and the US and it seemed like things were called off. Uh, I heard about Donald Trump writing this letter and saying that it's not going to happen. Uh, and then, in fact, I was just coming back up here in the car on the way and then there was talk of further talks happening and maybe it is still going to happen. Um, I'm not sure what you think about what Donald Trump has kind of done there, uh, but I was listening to what someone said about it and they said, Donald Trump doesn't want to come to the table wanting to be there more than what the other side wants to be there. Uh, he wants to have something to bargain with. Uh, he wants to be able to, to get a good deal. Uh, making a bargain, striking a deal, uh, giving a little to, to get a little. Often that's a big part of how not just relationships at an uh, international level work, but uh, often just relationships in our society work too, isn't it? You do this, uh, I'll do that. Uh, sometimes you get more than you bargain for, sometimes less. Sometimes you get more than you deserve. But often it's, what have I got that I can bring to the table? What can I get from this other person? What, what have they got that I want and we can make a trade? But there is someone, one person, where making a bargain with them 
means that actually you always end up with less. Making a bargain with this person means you always end up with less. And we'll see uh, who that is a little bit later from Judges today. Uh, now we're going to uh, look at this first part here of uh, Abimelech. Um, and we pick up from last week uh, at the end of chapter 8 there with Gideon and his children. Uh, if you were able to join us last week, we saw that Gideon was a bit of a mixed bag ruler. Uh, he sort of had faith at one point, uh, but then there's a lot of times where he's afraid and persistently actually refusing to take God at his word, putting God to the test, and then descending into cruelty and pride and to the folly of the kings of the nations around Israel. He basically set himself up as king, even though he refused the kingship. In all of this, though, God was unbelievably gracious to Gideon, satisfying Gideon's tests again and again, even giving him an opportunity to hear how the enemy thought that Gideon's victory was secure. God was so gracious and patient with him. But that's such a strong contrast to the message that comes out of this account, the account of Abimelech, where here we have a striking picture of what it means to get what you deserve. What it means to get what you deserve. Well, the episode begins uh, at a familiar, uh, with a, a familiar elements of the judge's cycle that we've been seeing over these weeks. Uh, verse 32, the, the last judge dies, uh, Gideon, son of Joash, died. Uh, and then verse 33, no sooner had Gideon died than the people go and prostitute themselves to the Baals. Baal Berith uh, is in fact the name of, of the God that they take on. Uh, that means covenant Baal, uh, as if the name even of the God that they go after uh, could be offensive to God, Yahweh, the covenant God who makes promises with them to take them as his people. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, anyway, they can, what happens though then when this one who is the king who's not a king, that is Gideon, what happens when he dies? Well, normally when a king dies, the heir takes the throne, don't they? That's uh, kind of part of that succession plan. Except when there's 71 heirs, well, then there might be a little bit of confusion, a bit of a problem. Um, Abimelech, uh, given his name, as we saw last week, uh, his name means my father, the king, uh, he takes it upon himself to iron out any confusion, to rule out any problems. Look, I'll make it easy and simple, uh, he says to the people of Shechem. Uh, but he needs help. You see, I don't know what it was like uh, in your family. Uh, for me, when I was growing up, there was just one sibling, me and my sister. So it was always, you know, one against one. You couldn't sort of gang up on the other. Um, but if you had 71 brothers and you wanted to try and get rid of them, I'm pretty sure they'd be able to stop you. So Abimelech needs some help. Uh, off he goes to his mother's family in Shechem. He convinces them that it would be better for them to have him as the king rather than all other 70 sons of Gideon. After all, he says, we're family. And when you're related to the one who's in power, surely there's got to be some side benefits there as well. They go along with him and they basically give him blood money. Do you see it there? 70 shekels, one shekel for each son that goes on the chopping block or the chopping stone, as it were. And he hires reckless scoundrels. Adventurers sounds so lovely, doesn't it? Reckless scoundrels, worthless men 
to follow him so that he can go and remove the competition for the throne. He kills all of his half-brothers on one bloody stone. But doesn't all happen smoothly. Jotham, his youngest brother, escapes. Do you see that? And then he appears just as the, the crowd, the people, come to crown Abimelech as their king. Now, the next little bit from verses 7, if you've got your Bibles open, if you haven't, uh, open them up. Verses 7 onwards is, is this fairly elaborate parable about some trees who are asking other trees to come and rule over them. It, it sounds a little bit like, you know, one of those jokes, you know, an, an olive tree and a fig tree and a vine walk into a bar and the barman said, well, the, the trees come and they say, come and be ruler over us. And they come and they'd say that to the thorn bush. Well, uh, Jotham, what he's basically saying throughout this parable is, if you've done the right thing here, if you, Abimelech, and the, and the people of Shechem have done the right thing here by the family of Jeroboam assassinating his 70 sons, and you certainly haven't, but if you have done the right thing, then I hope that you have a lovely, nice relationship with each other and have lots of fun. But if you have done the wrong thing, and you certainly have, then may it come back upon both of your heads, and in fact, may you destroy each other in the process. And in fact, while I've got your attention, didn't you know that you just made someone as worthless as a thorn bush to be your king? Well, after saying something like that, you can't stick around very long if you want to live, the new king. So we don't really hear from Jotham again. He's off and gone. But at verse 23, we do hear from someone who we haven't heard from yet in the account. Do you notice who it is? Have a look. Verse 23. God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. We, we hear from God at this point. This is a little bit strange because usually in the judges cycle that we've been seeing, well, we see God at work after the people uh, turn away from him. We see God handing them over to their enemies. We haven't seen that yet here, have we? And then we usually kind of a little bit later in the story after we meet someone, we, we see God's spirit at work kind of raising them up as the judge to save the people. Well, there doesn't appear to be kind of any enemy nations around them at this point. But with what we've just heard about Abimelech and Shechem, maybe we're beginning to see who it is, in fact, who the enemy, who, who it is that, who's the enemy that God is handing his people over to. That it's, in fact, themselves handing them over to their own sinfulness. Now, we do see God at work here in verse 23 in an interesting way. In the new NIV, it's God stirred up an animosity, but in the 84, it's God sent an evil spirit to work between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. This verse might bring up some questions about God's use of an evil spirit here. How can God do that? Isn't God just and pure and holy? What's going on? We don't have time to delve into all of the questions about that, but I'll just say simply at this point, the Bible as a whole does tell us that God is pure and good and holy. 
that he's not responsible for evil. But he is sovereign. He's sovereign in such a way that he can bring about good plans and purposes, despite the intentions of those who are acting in evil ways. So think of Joseph and his brothers. The brothers intended what they did to Joseph, selling him into slavery. They intended that for evil, but God brought brought about good through it as he saved saved the, 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 the family of Jacob from the famine because of the food that had been stored up in Egypt. Okay? Uh, so God is so sovereign that he can bring about good things even through evil actions of others. Well, what's the good that he's bringing about here? Verse 24, we're told, in fact, God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. This is an account of those who get what they deserve. In the rest of the account here uh, from Abimelech, if you haven't read it, do read it, it's quite interesting. But we see a man, Abimelech, who takes... Revenge, revenge on a people who start to oppose him. Uh, if you turn to, page, turn to verse 45, uh, not only does he get rid of this other one, Gaul, who comes in and stirs up the people against him, but he slaughters the people of Shechem as well. He killed its people, verse 45, destroyed the city and scattered salt over the ground as a kind of curse against it. And then he doesn't stop there. There's a tower where the leaders have retreated to and he goes and chops trees down and carries them and lays them at the bottom of this tower that they can't get into and they burn the people inside alive. Verse 49. And it doesn't stop there. In fact, verse 50, he goes to another another town called Thebes and looks to do just the same. His wrath, his desire for vengeance is not going to be stilled. But unfortunately for him, he's stopped by something. By, did you notice, another stone, verse 52, 53. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance to set it on fire, verse 53, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. A stone comes back in the story. His, his uh, request at this point from his armour bearer is to, uh, for an assisted suicide, as if that would cover the shame of his downfall. But that seems quite pitiful. Surely, Abimelech, there are other things you ought to be ashamed of before that. But the return of a stone in the story here is quite striking, isn't it? This stone dropped by a woman that we don't even know the name of here. An upper millstone would have been the kind of thing that they would like use to hand grind grain on a, on a larger kind of stone. So, so, you know, carryable, obviously. Um, but that brings to mind the other stone that we already saw earlier in the story too, doesn't it? The blood-covered stone on which 69 of Abimelech's half-brothers were slaughtered. And it reminds us again of the main point of this section, that God is giving Abimelech and the people of Shechem just what they deserve. 
This isn't mercy. This is judgment. Justice. Judgment upon what they have done. Judgment upon Israel for forsaking the Lord. Verse 56, we read, Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also repaid the people of Shechem for all their wickedness. Now, in one sense, this is good news. Good news in the sense that those who do evil are judged. It will be a terrible world, a terrible place where injustice happens and just keeps happening and just keeps happening and just keeps happening and there's no end. We hate that, don't we? God hates that even more. And as we see in this story, God is someone who is just, who is going to bring upon people's heads just what they deserve. But there's also a uh, less comfortable, I suppose, response that we can have to that. Because you see, what Abimelech deserves, what Shechem, the people of Shechem deserve here, even what the people of Israel deserve here is not in fact just what they deserve, is it? But it's what we deserve for turning away from God. This is what rejecting God means. In an age of entitlement these days, uh, there's plenty of things that we think we do deserve. Uh, we deserve fast internet that doesn't break down. Indeed, though the message of judges here is clear, indeed the message of all of God's word is clear, that sin deserves judgment and we are all sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. It's a fearful thing then, isn't it? To get what you deserve before God. Justice for you, justice for me. Justice before the Lord, the true and just God. No matter how we might try and argue the case or give different reasons, justice is never going to leave us with our lives still in our hand. That's what we deserve. Is that something that you know? Is that something that you remember? Is that something that you let sit with you from time to time? It's important that we do that. Without hearing that, remembering that, actually seeing that truth, we end up getting an inflated view of ourselves. A little bit later on, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, remembering what God has done. And we do a, we say a confession as we do that, acknowledging actually that's what we deserve. It's important that we keep doing that. But it also reminds us that if Israel or if you or I, if any of us are to have any kind of future, then what we actually need is not what we deserve, but something other than what we deserve. That's in fact what we need.
Let's see if things get any better with Jephthah. Thanks, Elaine. Uh, continuing on, chapter 10, verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the god of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin and the house of Ephraim. And Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites and the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to your gods who you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods amongst them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Thanks, Elaine. Well, things begin in a familiar way here again with the Judges cycle, don't they? Chapter 10, verse 6. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon and the gods of insert neighboring nation, uh, neighboring, the name of a neighboring nation here. It goes on, doesn't it? Again and again, this happens in Judges. And the question comes to mind, surely, will God ever give up on them? Well, this time things are a bit different, aren't they? Oh, the people still cry out. They cry out to the Lord, verse 10, We have sinned against you, forsaking the Lord our God and serving the Baals. In a surprising moment of clarity, that they actually acknowledge that they have sinned and done the wrong thing. They don't just cry out because they're in distress. Still, the response from God at this point is chilling. It's just and understandable, but chilling nonetheless. Have a look there in chapter 10, verse 11. When all of these other nations oppressed you, God says, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. What a terrible, chilling word from the Lord at this point. I will no longer save you. I think that must have struck them quite deeply because it's only after that in verse 16 that they seem to kind of at least have some action of repentance and actually get rid of the foreign gods from among them. And then they cry out to God again. I suppose the question is, is that though them just kind of throwing some bargaining chips out onto the table that they might then 
manipulate God into doing what it is they want him to. God maybe sees through it a little. Verse 16, the NIV puts it like this, God could bear Israel's misery no longer. It sounds like he you know, has compassion or something, but the ESV has a slightly different mood, another translation. The Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. I mean, God is close to being at an end with them. I certainly would have long ago. Well, verse 17, the enemy is here in Gilead. That's kind of shorthand for over the eastern side of the Jordan, kind of Canaan, Canaan proper or the, the promised land is over the western side of the Jordan, between the Jordan and the, and the sea, but over, the, over in the east, that's Gilead. The, the enemies are there and so Israel gathers there to fight them. But there's a slight problem, verse 18, look with me. The leaders of the people get together and say, who's going to take lead? Whoever does, they can, they can lead over all of Gideon, Gilead. The leaders are there, but there's no leadership. No one wants to step forward and take the lead. But wait a minute. We come to verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1. Jephthah, the Gileadite. There's someone who looks like he might be the right one. A Gileadite through and through. And a mighty warrior too. Sounds good, right? We think, they're saved. But there's a problem. He's actually not around. He's been rejected, sent off by his own. In one sense, a little bit like God. Israel came, forsook God and then came to him in their need. Well, that seems a little bit like what happens to Jephthah. His family gets rid of him. We don't want you around, they say. Verse Verse 2, but then the leaders come looking for him. He's in a place or been living, it says the, the land of Tob, this kind of frontier land, uh, hard life, you know, nothing's for free there. You've got to work for everything that you get. You've, you've got a bargain. When you've got the upper hand, you use it to get the best from someone else. But when you, when you don't, well, you need to just get by with what you've got. Try and trade on what you need. It's always riding on you, depending upon you and what you can do. And so Jephthah, well, he's a man who's always looking for a deal. We kind of see that when he, when he comes back in and, and he's talking with the others. He's, he's like the negotiator. Uh, chapter 11, verse 7. They come to him and say, come. And he says, well, you forsook me before. Why are you coming to me now? And again in verse 9. What if I come and you don't really make me the head? He keeps bargaining with them to get what he wants. Not just to be the commander of the army, but head over all of Gilead. And he bargains with the Ammonites. It seems like quite a noble speech, really. If you go from verse 12, uh, Jephthah sent messages to the Ammonite king, uh, and then it goes all the way down, over the page for me at least, uh, to verse 27. These messengers going back and forward with Ammon. And finally he appeals to the Lord to settle things. Ammon doesn't want to have a bar of it. He says, thanks but no thanks. And so the time for the battle arrives. We come to verse 29 and we see some familiar things. The Spirit of the Lord is active, comes upon Jephthah. He goes on a recruitment tribe, building his, his army through Gilead, Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead and then advances against the enemy. We, we can see momentum being built, speed is coming. 
the victory is close at hand, but then all of a sudden something comes out of nowhere. Things stop in verse 30. Look with me, chapter 11, verse 30. Jephthah makes a, a vow, a bargain with the Lord. Instead of stepping forward and trusting God with the victory that was in his hands, he steps back into what he seems to have always done, to what he knows maybe, to what's worked in other difficult times. He resorts to making a bargain, to striking a deal with God to try and shore up this victory. He can't just accept that victory as a free gift. He's got to secure it the only way that he knows how, by offering something. He's got to give to get, he thinks. And so verse 31, he says, After you give me victory, God, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering whatever comes out of the door of my tent when I return. Oh, Jephthah, why? Why did you have to say this? The foolishness of trying to bargain with God. Bargain with the one who has said he is on your side. As if you need to entice him to do what's good for you. That is foolishness. The action resumes in verse 32, kind of where things left off in verse 29. And we're meant to understand actually that it was completely unnecessary what Jephthah does. The, the report of the victory is, is cursory. At best, he devastated 20 towns and Israel subdued Ammon. It's kind of all over in no, in no time. And what we would expect now is peace, a time of rejoicing. But instead of that, it's a time of weeping for Jephthah, isn't it? What will come of that vow? Well, he comes home to his, to his uh, tent in Mizpah and who should come out but his only daughter alone verse 34 and instead of at that point repenting of the foolishness of his vow repenting of his own pride and insecurity his own self desire to be self-reliant that led him to try and make his victory secure by making a vow. Instead of repenting of that and turning away from it, he sacrifices his daughter to that very thing, to his pride and insecurity. It's tragic. Tragic for his daughter. Tragic for Jephthah. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? in order to get something. You might not have tried to bargain for your salvation, uh, but have you ever tried that, that bargain? God, if you would just give me this job, if you would just let me get my driver's license, if you would just give me that relationship that I want, if you would just give me this car, if you would just get me through this sickness, then I promise I'll... You can fill in the blanks. If you do this, God oh, I promise I'll do that. Or maybe some other variation. Maybe it's more the other way around. I've done this, God. You should be doing this for me. I've done better at not yelling at the kids all week this week. Can't you at least make them obey me for one minute? 
as if you need to coax or bribe or argue God into doing something that's good for you. But there's two big problems with this idea of trying to bargain with God. You see, first, bargaining assumes that you've got something to bargain with, something of value to the other party in exchange for which you might be able to get what you want. But do we have anything to bargain with when it comes to bargaining with God? Well, no. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? If God is our creator and sustainer, the one who's both given us life and gives us every breath, if he already deserves first place in our life, all of our loving him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind and our strength, then what can you or I add to that? That then we might have something else with which to bargain with God. Any attempt to bargain with God forgets where we actually stand with him, forgets the lesson from Abimelech and Shechem of what we deserve. That when we come to the bargaining table, we actually come, well, with less than nothing. The second problem, though, that when you try and bargain with God is that you simply end up with less, far far less, far less than what God is willing to give you on the basis of His grace, on the basis of His kindness. Oh, how, how wonderful, how amazing is the grace of God in comparison to, to trying to get what we deserve or try and bargain for something. God the God of grace gives us infinitely more than we deserve or could bargain for. Not for the payment of a price, but as a free gift. Even when it comes to salvation, it would be a total misunderstanding of salvation to think that salvation is a negotiated deal. You know, God, I'll do this, I'll do this for you and you do that for me. I'll do the, the trust thing, you do the saving thing. Deal? Is that okay? No, that totally gets it wrong. We stand under judgment. We come with, with nothing. Like the, the tax collector in that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who both approach God, one on their own standing, the other knowing that he has no standing before God. He doesn't even look up to heaven, but he calls upon the God of mercy. He throws himself on God's mercy and asks for kindness. This is the God that shows himself to us in Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so unlike seeking to get what we deserve and getting it wrong, or trying to bargain for something and ending up with less, resting in God's grace doesn't lead us to insecurity, to self-interest, to self-reliance, but leads us to security in relationship with God, to humility, being able to admit that we do the wrong thing, that our own weakness and failure and folly, to confess and receive forgiveness. 
Resting in God's grace directs us to the joy of that secure relationship with God. That if he's given us his own son, how will he not also with him give us all things? And so in light of that, we need to surrender any thought of bargaining with God. Not just once, but again and again. And keep taking up the joy of resting in God's grace. Do you know that joy, that security of the grace of God? Pray that you do. Amen.